Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are wonderful, that you listen to our prayers, that you care for even the smallest detail of our lives. And God, I just thank you when when I think about your wonder, the fact that you planned my life, you knew me before I was born, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It really blows my mind, God, that someone so powerful, so majestic, cares for me. And you care for every person in this room. God, I pray that, that today folks might experience you and it would change their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're in this series, Life Hurts, God Heals. And uh, this week, we're not going to have a video. We're going to tell you that next week we're going to double up. We're going to do a funny uh, interview and we're going to do a serious interview next week. So uh, y'all have to come back to, to see that. We've been interviewing people about real pain in their lives. And what we've discovered is that, that all of us have pain. Um, we all have hurts we'll never forget. We have hang-ups that we'll never get rid of. We've got habits that are messing up our lives. And so we're talking about this road to healing. We've been looking at um, God heals as an acrostic, and today we're on the fifth step. Part five, we're talking about embracing God's way. That's the next step towards healing. So step one was I admit I'm powerless. Step one, we said the short way to remember it is I can't. Step two is God can. There is a higher power. His name is Jesus, and he can do uh, things in your life. Step three is I depend on Christ. Step four is I honestly examine what's going on in my life. I look at all of the junk that's there. We talked about that last week, doing a a spiritual inventory, a moral inventory of your life and really looking at what's going on in your life. And then uh, step five is today we talk about embracing God's way. Here's what it is. I will ask God to change the character defects of my life and direct me his way. Now, we've been looking at um, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five. The one we're looking at today is verse six. Happy are those whose greatest desire is to do what God requires. God will satisfy them fully. Anybody here like to have a satisfying life? Let me just take a quick poll. There's about four of you. Okay, there we go. More of you. Okay, you're participating. Yeah, I know a lot of times preachers do that and they don't want a response. That's one of those points where I actually did want a response. God will satisfy the people who take this step, who embrace God's way. Well, if you want to be satisfied, then the next logical question is, how do we do it? Well, the key is in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. Let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. I want you to circle a couple of things there. First, circle the word transform. God takes what's there and transforms it. How does he do it? Circle the phrase change of your mind. The way we are transformed is by having our minds changed. Well, I want to talk about a couple of things real quickly. Where do my character defects come from? How come they're so hard to get rid of? And then how do I cooperate with God's plan in changing me? First, where do they come from? The first um, possibility is your genes. Genetically, biology. Some of you, some of these things you inherited, both your mother and your father contributed 23,000 chromosomes each to you. So you inherited some of their weaknesses. Um, You inherited some of their physical defects. You inherited some of their emotional defects. This explains your predisposition towards certain sins. However, it does not give you an excuse to go out and commit sin. For instance, let's say that my parents um, had a problem with anger. And so maybe I have a predisposition towards being a hothead. That does not excuse me going out and murdering someone. 
You know, maybe I have a predisposition towards um, addictions. That does not excuse me going out in my life and becoming addicted. We can't I can't blame my parents for those types of things. Now, I might be weaker in some area, but there's some things that, that I have choices. So this first thing is my genes. My nature is one source of my defects. Second is my circumstances. Now, this is your environment that you grew up in. You learned a lot of the ways of relating, the way your parents raised you. You learned how to get attention, both positive and negative. And you learned how to respond to your own needs in certain ways and how to cover for yourself, how to get these needs met. A lot of your defects are simply um, self-defeating attempts to meet those unmet needs. For example, you have a legitimate need for respect. But if you didn't get respect when you were growing up, you would find ways to perform so that others would pat you on the back and you would feel affirmed from that. That's a legitimate need, respect. You have a legitimate need for love. But if you didn't get love when, when you were a child, you may have resorted to cheap sex to find that emotional closeness, that physical touch that, that you didn't get from your parents. Legitimate needs that we meet in illegitimate ways. So we've got to be careful with that. So some of the things that our defects come from our circumstances. And then the last one, which, which we really need to own up to, is my choices. Anytime you choose to do something long enough, it becomes a habit. It becomes ingrained in your life. Things you never intended to develop in your life develop because you chose to do them over and over and they became a habit. Well, why is it so hard to get get rid of these defects? A couple of reasons. One is because I've had them so long. You didn't get them overnight. It took years to get the way you are. You're not going to lose them overnight. The habits, the patterns you've developed in childhood, they may not be comfortable to you, but at least they are familiar. This explains why sometimes people that are incarcerated um, when they get out of jail, they'll go right back to jail because at least it's familiar. It may not be the best way. It may not be the logical way, but it's familiar. And so they'll go back to that because it's familiar. And that's what a lot of folks do with uh, with our habits. We've just had them so long. We say, that's just the way I am because you've had them so long. You, it's hard to get rid of. them. You can't even remember what your life was like before those defects. A second reason is I identify with them. Now, I don't know why we do this. But a lot of times we confuse our identity with our defects. What we'll say is, oh, that's just like me. That's just the way I am. And so we're identifying with our defects and we don't have to do that. You can change when you say that's just the way I am. You are labeling yourself and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I am just a hothead. I am just a workaholic. I am just uh, overweight. You are you are labeling yourself and uh, and it becomes that prophecy self-fulfilling. My family and I like to watch the. The TV show, The Biggest Loser. Any of y'all ever seen The Biggest Loser? First, we watched it the first year, uh, you know, just out of curiosity, got hooked. And so when we came on this year, they're like, OK, Dad, you got to tape it every week because we're never home when it's on. And so it's a big deal. We come home, and watch The Biggest Loser. We get to meet all of the people. You know, we watch them and we're, we're pulling for them. And these people do amazing things. I mean, these some of these folks are up to 70 pounds that they've lost at this point in the show. And uh, we we watch them and every week somebody gets voted off. I mean, it's a reality series. And so somebody's got to get punted every week. And, and that's a that's not the fun part. But you'll get to see them now. You know, they taped it months ago. You get to see them now. And, and it's fun to watch and see if they've maintained the habits that they learned on the show. And some of them have. They look great today. Some of them haven't. Well, last week, I guess it was two weeks ago, um, they were interviewing some of these guys. One of these guys that that had lost 70 pounds. They said to him, just kind of in this group meeting, they said, um, how do you feel? How do you feel right now? And I'll never forget this. It, it really stuck out in my mind because he just sat there for a minute and looked at the camera and he goes, well, you know, 
it's kind of weird because when I when I was real fat, I could just hide behind the fact that I was fat. He said, I'd just eat. If I had problems, I'd eat. He said, but now that I'm losing weight, I can't hide behind food anymore. I've got to face these emotions. And you could tell it was messing with his mind because he was facing some things he'd never faced before. He said, I have to face some stuff now. Well, before he had been identifying himself with his defect. And you don't have to do that. That's the power of God that comes into your life. Another reason it's so hard to get rid of my defects is because there is a payoff. He's right. The word payoff there. Every defect has a payoff. It may mask my pain. It may give me an excuse to fail. It may allow me to compensate for my guilt in my life. It may get me attention. My defect may allow me to control other people. But you can, I can guarantee you this. Anytime you are repeating some pattern or some destructive behavior in your life, whether it's you, your children, your spouse, somebody in your family, there is always a payoff because we never do things consistently that don't get rewarded. It may be a twisted type of, of reward, but there is something in your lifestyle that is getting rewarded by doing that. And so there's this payoff and you don't want to let go of it in your subconscious. You don't want to let go because of this payoff that you're getting. And then the fourth reason is Satan discourages me. It's difficult because as soon as you leave here, some of you say, man, I'm glad we're doing this series on healing. Life hurts. God heals. And you go out and as soon as you get out. Satan starts whispering in your ear before you even get in the car. This will never work. That dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, these aren't my principles. Doug didn't come up with this. This is from God's word. And so since God created you, he is your manufacturer. He knows what's going on. And if you'll try what he says, don't don't trust me. Trust God and he'll do some amazing things in your life. Jesus called Satan a liar. He said that is his nature. He's been a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. And the Bible says that the truth will set you free. So if Satan is the father of lies, all he's going to do is get you tangled up in a bunch of self-defeating behaviors. Jesus says, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And that's what we're attempting to find out in this whole series is how to be free from our hurts and our habits and our hangups. Well, all right, let's look at that. How do I cooperate with God's change process in my life? Well, go back to Romans 12 to let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Transform changing of your mind. Your thoughts are your autopilot in your life. Um, the Bible says as you think in your heart as a man thinks in his heart. So is he. Your thoughts determine who you are. Your, your thoughts determine your feelings. Your feelings determine your actions. Now, I don't know if you've, you've been in, in a boat that has autopilot. But let's just pretend that you have a boat. And, and we wouldn't do this on a small lake that we have around here because this could be really, really a bad thing. But let's say that you're in a, on a large body of water. We're out in the ocean and you're in a boat that has autopilot. And you set the autopilot for east. Now, you could go to the steering wheel, the steering mechanism, and you could forcefully turn that boat away from east. You could turn it and make it go west. But there is this incredible tension on the steering wheel the whole time that you are fighting over and over because you set the controls to go east. But you're trying by willpower, sheer force to overcome the natural inclination of that boat to go east. You can do it, but there is going to come a point where you get tired and you let go of the steering wheel and it's going to go right back to that. And you're going to fall off of the diet. You're going to go back to smoking because you're trying to do those things in your own power and not in God's power. Any defect that you have in your life that you want to to get rid of, you have to trust God's power, not your own power, because willpower will not do it. And you remember I said last week that 
that a guy who worked with drug addicts, he said the key to whether a drug addict gets healed is whether he sees himself as a forgivable child of God, not a perfect child of God, but a forgivable one. And so when you go to your autopilot, when you're doing those types of things by willpower, some people just get defeated and they say, I can't do it. I'm a failure. I might as well go ahead. And then they label themselves again. I'm this type of person. I'm never changing It's because they're trying to do it in their own power. Well, how do we do it? There's some things you need to focus on. First thing you need to do is focus on changing one defect at a time. One defect at a time. Proverbs 17, 24 says an intelligent person aims at wise action, but a fool starts off in many directions. You've seen that, right? Folks who try to do 1000 things at the same time never do anything well and they never complete anything either, by the way. So you hear this series, you think, great, I've got 30 things in my life I want to change. Don't do it because you'll get discouraged and you'll quit. What I think you need to do is I think you need to ask God. You know, we talked about a moral inventory last week. Those things in my life, um, by the way, that's on the website if you want to, to listen to that or we can make you a copy of it. But you make a, a spiritual inventory, a moral inventory of your life. Go back to those things and say, God, which of these things is messing up my life the most? What do you want me to focus on first? Not what I want to focus on. Which one do you want me to focus on first? And when you pray, you know, don't don't. Uh, don't just say, God, make me a better person, because a lot of times that is just another form of denial. Let's be specific and say, God, here is a defect. It's messing up my life. I want your help in dealing with it. Second thing you need to do is focus on victory one day at a time. Matthew six eleven. Give us this month our daily bread. Have you all heard that version of it? What does it say? Give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because God wants you to depend on him one day at a time. A lot of folks would like to have this this bank account filled with God's grace. So, you know, I have this storehouse over here and I know I've got my little ATM card of grace. And whenever I want the grace, I run by and say, God, it's going to be a tough day today. Give me some grace, you know, and you run your ATM card through there. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't want to give you enough strength to last for the next month. He wants to give you enough strength for today. Because then you learn to depend on him and not your your bank account of grace and power that you have over here. Because, you know, we would do that. If we had our own, we would we'd turn our backs on God. What do I need you for? I've got this bank account of grace. God says, no, you want my power. You have to depend on it one day at a time. Um, Rome wasn't built in a day. Character wasn't built in a day and character defects are not removed in a single day. Third thing you need to do is focus on God's power, not my willpower. Focus on God's power, not my willpower. The key here is prayer. And we, we mentioned this just a little bit. Now, if you struggle with prayer, I want you to meet this guy that I'm, I'm going to tell you about. This dude's prayer isn't much, um, but the answer is, and the result reminds us, the power is not in the prayer. The power is in the one who hears the prayer. All right, that's pretty significant, so I'm going to repeat that. The power is not in the prayer. It drives me crazy when I see I'm glad that, that Channel 7 does this. You know, they call it the power of prayer in Tyler. I'm sorry. I can pray to this post right here and it might be a powerful prayer, but that post is not going to do anything for me. The power comes from the one who hears the prayer. So you've got to have faith in the right one. Now, this guy prayed out of desperation. His son, his only son is demon possessed. 
Not only that, he's a deaf mute and an epileptic and he was possessed by this evil spirit. Those are not the types of things that you want to write in the back of your yearbook, you know, about the the accomplishments of your life, that you're a deaf mute and you're an epileptic and you're possessed by an evil spirit. Now, ever since the boy was young, the demon had thrown him into the fire, had thrown him into the water. So the father literally had to be on call 24 seven watching out for his son because he could not go anywhere, do anything by himself that he wouldn't endanger himself. And here is his prayer. If you can do anything for him, please have pity on us and help us. He's desperate and he's, and he's tired and his prayer um, sounds desperate and fatigued, doesn't it? Now, let's pretend that we're in a, a, in a seminary class right now and let's analyze this prayer. OK, does this prayer sound par- powerful? Hello? Okay, we're in a seminary class and they make you talk in a seminary class. So it doesn't sound powerful. Does it sound courageous? Does it sound confident? Strong? How about proper? Oh, heavenly father. My kids do that when we're just messing around, when we, you know, trying to sound proper, do our hands right. No, it doesn't sound like any of that, does it? And there's a reason. If his prayer sounds like your prayers, don't get discouraged. Because that's where prayer begins. It begins as a longing in your heart. It begins as a conversation where you're not pretending before God. You're not putting on any masks, pretending that you know the right words to say. You're not bragging. You're just talking to God. Because weak prayer is still prayer. And it's the one who hears that determines whether it's powerful or not. You you know, we get tempted to wait until we know how to pray to pray. But some of the coolest prayers I've ever heard are from people Far from God who get down on their knees and they're saying, God, I don't even know if you're real. But my life sucks. I've heard that and I've gone. That is a prayer God's going to answer. None of these proper words just pouring out their heart to God. Well, it's a good thing this dad didn't make the mistake of waiting until he knew the proper words to pray for his son. He wasn't much of a prayer. And this wasn't much of a prayer, but look what happens. He even admits it in Mark 9, 24. The father cried out, I do believe. Help me to believe more. He's begging God to help him believe more. He wants to believe, but his life stinks because his son is so destructive. Now, I don't think you're going to see this prayer in any worship manual. You're not going to see it in the book of Psalms, although there are some very similar from David in the book of Psalms. But Jesus responded. He responded not to the fancy words of the man. He responded to The pain of the man. And God says throughout the Bible that he'll do the same for you. He'll respond to your pain. Now, depending on your own strength actually blocks recovery in your life. When you make a resolution, all you are doing is you're trying to force the boat to go one way when the autopilot is designed to go another way. So resolutions don't work. You'll get tired and you'll let go. But here's the good news. Philippians 4.13. I can master anything with the help of Christ who gives me strength. So you pray, Lord, I know I can't change on my own power, but I'm trusting you with this defect in my life. Please take it away. I want you to literally imagine. Let's say that you're working on your temper. Literally imagine God taking away your your problem, your defect. So let's say it's temper. So you say, God, I am I am putting my temper out in the garbage. So you think, you know, we got one of those. 
33-gallon uh, trash cans back there. You take off the lid. You say, God, I am putting my temper in the trash. And you put the lid on it. You take it out to the curb. You imagine that this, this uh, trash truck comes up and it says, God and son doing business with people like you for 2,000 years. Jesus sends one of his buddies out. They get the trash. They go, they dump it in here. You watch them put it in the big thing. They compact it and they speed back off to heaven. Literally, that's what it means to imagine God taking away this defect from your life. Now, the problem is, if we're honest, I need trash service every hour, not just once or twice a week like, you know, we do around here. Because some of the stuff stinks and I don't have the power a lot of times to overcome my defect. So I just pray it over and over and over again and ask God to do that. You trust God's power, not your own. A fourth thing that you need to do is I focus on what I want, not what I don't want. I focus on what I want, not what I don't want. Philippians 4, 8 is a verse that, that I quote over and over and over again. Here's what it says. Fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. Think about things that are pure. Think about all you can praise God for and be glad about. So what this means is you focus on the good things, not on the bad things, because whatever you focus on has power over you. Whatever you think about has power over you. So if you say to yourself, I'm not going to think about sex, I'm not going to think about sex, I'm not going to think about sex. What do you think about sex? That's exactly right. Whatever you resist persists. Now, listen to me. Not once in the Bible did God ever say resist temptation. Now, some of you are going to. You're going to look at me crazy. The Bible says resist the devil, the one who tempts, but it never says resist temptation. Why? Because whatever you resist persists. Whatever you push on pushes back that much harder. What the Bible teaches is don't resist, refocus. Okay, I'm turning my channels on my TV. There's some show on that I don't need to see. And if I don't remember that, my children will remind me that no, we're not supposed to watch that, Dad. So what do I do? Do I leave the channels on and say, I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to watch this. No, if I have a brain, I switch channels. That's what the Bible teaches. Not resisting the temptation. You resist the devil. Jesus resisted the devil, but he didn't resist the temptation. How did he resist the devil? He quoted scripture. And I'm going to tell you, that's the most helpful thing that you can do. If you memorize one verse a week for the next 52 weeks, you'd have 52 verses that would be in your mind that you can bring up against the power of Satan. Because what happens is every time you think a thought, any thought, whether it's positive or negative, there are these electrical impulses that go across your brain. You think that thought long enough and that gets to be ingrained in your mind. And Satan and, and other people tell you all kinds of junk. All kinds of negative things. And you keep thinking those thoughts over and over and over. And it becomes negative. What Jesus did whenever Satan came and tempted him and said, feed yourself on these, you know, turn this, these rocks into bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He didn't argue with Satan over the properness of turning rocks into bread. He just quoted the truth of Scripture. So when you go over that in your mind, some of you got Grand Canyon negative thoughts in your mind. You've got these grooves. Because people have been lying to you your whole life. People have been deceiving you, been hurting you, been telling you you are one way when God says, no, you're my precious creation. And so you've got to refocus. You've got to totally, I mean, it says, totally change your way of thinking in order to take that negative and turn it into a positive. And the way you do it is you, you put God's word in your mind over and over and over again. All right, number five, focus on doing good, not feeling good. Focus on doing good, not feeling good. I, I talk a lot about this in, in uh, 
marriage counseling. Because do you always feel like loving your spouse? Don't you lie. No. When I'm sick, I don't feel like anything. I don't feel like talking. And I'm one of those, leave me alone when I'm sick. Go to the other end of the house or rent me a motel room where I can be by myself. I don't want anybody around. You know, Janie, when I first time I ever got sick, she was coming in trying to, you know, be nice. Because in, in college, her roommate always wanted her to wipe her forehead, you know, get a cool cloth. And I'm like, get out. If I'm sick, leave me alone. I don't feel like loving my wife. But I made a decision 14 years ago that I was going to love her no matter how I felt. Look at this verse, and then we'll talk more about that. Galatians 5.16, if you're guided by the Spirit, you will no longer be in danger of yielding to self-indulgence. What that means is if you trust God and you do the right thing, regardless of how you feel, after a while, the feelings come around. In AA, they have a phrase called, that, that says, fake it until you make it. You act one way and eventually you'll start feeling that way. It is easier to act your way into a new way of feeling than feel your way into a new way of acting. If you wait until you feel like it to do what's right, you'll never do it because Satan is going to make sure you never feel like it. He'll put all kinds of obstacles in your way to make sure that you do not feel like it. So when you don't feel good, you start... When you start to do these things, the right thing, regardless of how you feel... It will not feel natural because you've been doing what's abnormal so long that normal doesn't even feel normal. So you keep doing it until it feels normal. And God says he will give you the power if you'll focus on doing good, not feeling good. Number six, this is incredibly important. Focus on other changed lives to help me. The right kind of people will help you. The wrong kind of people will hinder you. They'll prevent your recovery. The NCAA uh, cross-country track championship was held in Riverside, California a while back. The runners came to this one turn that wasn't well marked. And one runner named Mike Del Calvo knew the right way. And so he takes the proper path as all the other runners are going a different direction. And he starts frantically waving his arms, trying to get the others to follow him. Only four did. So 123 out of 128 runners were disqualified. They forfeited their chance to win the race because they went one way when they should have gone another. And Del Calvo later said his competitors were laughing as he uh, chose to take what he knew was the right way. They laughed at him, and he's the one that ends up winning the race because he knew the right way to go. One pastor said this, In the spiritual race we are running, the crowd following Jesus may be small or it may be large, but the size of the crowd is not how we determine the right path. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Whichever way he goes is the way we want to go. Our usefulness to God decreases the farther from Jesus we get and increases the closer we get. If you're in the spiritual race, it's important to look ahead and make sure the footsteps you are following are Jesus. There is no way to win the spiritual race of life if you are following a crowd that is not following Jesus. Here's what the Bible says real specifically about it. First Corinthians 15, 33. Don't fool yourselves. Bad friends will destroy you. You ever hung out with the wrong crowd? It doesn't lead to the right place. I found that out many years ago. In other words, if you don't want to get stung, you stay away from the bees. If you know the kind of people that tempt you, stay away from those kind of people. If you're struggling with alcoholism, what sense does it make to go to the bar to eat peanuts? Come on. 
Let's use our brains here. If you're struggling with pornography, don't go to those places. If you're struggling with pornography on the Internet, they make all kinds of software, accountability software. Um, Did you know there's some stuff now that you can send to a friend? A friend of mine and I are talking about getting this and installing it on our computers where it sends him a snapshot of all of the things I've looked at on the Internet. And it sends me a a snapshot of those things so that we can keep one another accountable. If you want to have victory over these things, there are ways that you can do it. But it always involves getting other people involved in your life. You can't do it on your own. I said this in the first lesson. A lot, of, a lot of you didn't believe me. You will not experience recovery from your hurts, your habits, and your hang-ups by yourself. God created us to be in relationship, and you need God and other people in order to do it. When we, um, when we first started talking about Celebrate Recovery, starts on November 6th at 6.30 p.m. right here. When we first started talking about doing this... Um, we didn't know what all was involved, really. We just knew that God had called us to do this. And I had the question this last week, is this just for people that are dealing with drugs or alcohol? Absolutely not. Every group that I've ever been to, there's people that, are, that need healing from divorce. There's people that, that have eating disorders. There, there are all kinds of abuse issues, both mental and physical and sexual abuse folks that need healing. My prayer is that anybody who has any issue that you, you need some help dealing with, that you'll come to celebrate recovery. You spend 52 weeks talking about this stuff. There's no way you can experience healing listening to an eight-week uh, series on healing. I'm sorry, it just doesn't happen that way. We say this all the time. You can worship in a crowd like this, but you can't fellowship in a crowd. We'll have fellowship after we finish with worship today, but the fellowship won't happen in this context. It'll happen around each table. People at each table will be talking. When we do celebrate recovery, folks are going to come together. We'll have worship. We'll have a a snack. And then we'll break into groups where you work through the step study. Each week, you'll you'll hear either a testimony or you'll have large group teaching time. Um, But then you'll break into smaller groups. And eventually, if, if this grows like we think it's going to grow, eventually there will be a group that deals with drug addictions. Eventually, as it grows big enough, at first we can't do that. There'll be a group that deals with, with sexual abuse. That, that's, everybody in that group has that. But until we grow to that point, there'll be a men's group and there'll be a women's group. Because we've said this, we're not a singles group. We're not a place where you're trying to hook up with somebody. We're a place where we're trying to get folks well through the power of God. And it happens in relationship. So if you have any issues that, that you need to deal with, and where's Matt? Matt told me last week. Where are you, Matt? Oh, there he is. Hey, Matt. Matt came up to me last week and pulled me to the side and he goes, man, I've been listening to you preach this series. And every time you preach, I feel bad. And I'm like, dude, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. And he says, because you say every week everybody has hurts and they've got habits and they've got pain in their lives. And he's like, I don't. And I looked at him and he goes, I mean, I've dealt with it. And I said, okay, man, if you've had healing, we need to, we need to interview Matt, figure out how he got all of that healing. And I, I'm not saying that, that you can't be healed because a lot of people have been healed. Anne shared her testimony and, and hers was awesome about how she had prayed and how God had helped heal that void in her heart. So there is a possibility of healing. I don't want anybody to leave here feeling bad. I want you to know that there is a way that you can have healing for your life. All right, so we cool, Matt? Okay, good. Now, the last thing is, Focus on progress, not perfection. 
I have actually heard some people say things like, well, you know, I've been trying this recovery stuff. I've been trying to heal, but I'm not seeing any progress. Some people will pray and say, OK, God, I give you a week. And you've got a 30 year old habit that you're telling God he's got to deal with in a week. And God says, I'm sorry, I don't work that way. I work a day at a time. So you've got to not worry about whether you've had a massive amount of, of progress yet. When you decide to come to God for healing, when you decide to embrace God's way, this fifth step, it's a decision followed by a process. Now, my dad was a CB, a construction battalion in World War Two, and I went to a, a reunion several years ago with all of these CBs. You know, it was, a, it was a 50, I don't even remember, 53, 54 year reunion since they'd been in World War Two on Guadalcanal. And they invited a Marine to come and, and to share. And, you know, he talked about how important the CBs were because they built stuff. They helped the Marines out. Marines are pretty independent type guys, but they actually like the CBs because they, they did a lot of stuff with them. But what the Marines would do in World War II in the Pacific Ocean, they would come to an island that was occupied by the enemy. You know how they would do it? They would go to the island. They would start bombing it like crazy. And then they would establish a beachhead. One little area that could be called United States controlled area. And they would say, we now have a beachhead. Then they would begin to relentlessly work themselves out into the entire island until they occupied it all. Till there was no more resistance on the island. Spiritually, that's what God wants to do with you. When you come to him, you say, OK, God, I humbly ask you to take care of this defect in my life. God establishes a beachhead, but the war to take over your life continues every day that you have breath. You will not achieve perfection until you go to heaven to be with God. He's promised that we don't even know what it's like, but the Bible says when we see him, we know that when we when we die and we see him, we will be like him. And that body is pretty incredible because you remember when Jesus came back from the dead, he was able to walk through walls. <laughs> he was able to eat because he wanted to, not because he had it, had to. You know, they had breakfast that day after he said to Peter, they had breakfast. He ate because he wanted to. We will achieve perfection, but until then, God is working on expanding that beachhead in our lives and taking control of our entire life every single day. So focus on progress, not on perfection. Some of you believe that God will not love you until you get to a certain stage, until you reach a certain area of perfection. That is just blatantly false, and that comes from the pits of hell, that lie. You know, as a dad, I've got three kids. I don't expect my 10-year-old to act like a 21-year-old. I don't expect my 8-year-old to act like a 15-year-old. I am quite pleased with their progress right now. Are they perfect? Heavens, no. I mean, Caleb's life verse, though you beat him with the rod, he will not die. I still, he hates that life verse, but I've branded that on him from the day he was born. That's great wisdom from God's Word. There are still things that, that we need to work on in, in my son, in my eight-year-old, in my five-year-old. But I am quite pleased with where they are. God will not love you any more than He does right now. And He will not love you any less than He does right now. He's just waiting on you to say, God, I surrender. I give you my life. Take this trash and take it out of my life. That's what He's waiting on. I want you guys, come on back up here. The band is going to play one more song as, as we finish today. And I want you just to, to listen to the words of the song and think about your life. 
just in your mind, do an inventory of of how great God is, yet how many things there are in your life that you need to turn over to him. And um, and when they finish, we'll have word prayer and then we'll be dismissed.